Welcome to the International Trade Minute, quick fire trade news where time is trade. We are your go-to podcast for rapid and concise updates on trade and law, designed specifically for busy trade professionals. Sponsored by Rydell Law Firm and prepared by seasoned trade attorneys, our twice-weekly podcast packages your essential trade updates, all in the time it takes to enjoy your coffee break. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and join the conversation with a network of like-minded professionals on LinkedIn, where time is trade, make every minute count. In today's episode, we're diving into some of the latest headlines that have been shaking up the international trade landscape. Here's a quick rundown of today's headlines. EPA finalizes bans on HFCs in imported products, BIS firearms pause and AMP, review, challenge on USTR's stance on digital trade, US-EU steel deal, and CPSC finalizes changes to flammability testing requirements for textiles. Let's get started. On our first story today, we're diving deep into new EPA regulations that are poised to reshape the import scene in the United States. In a significant move towards environmental responsibility, the EPA has decided to put its foot down on harmful HFCs. HFCs, or hydrofluorocarbons, are found in a range of products, from our cars, air conditioning systems, to the cooling systems at data centers. They've been a concern due to their high global warming potential. Starting between 2025 and 2028, the EPA is implementing a ban on the use of certain high global warming potential HFCs in over 50 imported and newly manufactured products. This spans a variety of sectors, making the scope of this ban truly substantial, and it doesn't stop there. Once the restriction on manufacture and import kicks in, there's a subsequent three-year ban on the sale, distribution, and even exportation of these products. So if we're talking timelines, that's between 2028 and 2031. However, there's a silver lining for repair businesses. The restrictions don't apply to components used for repairing existing systems. So parts for older air conditioning, refrigeration, and heat pump systems can still be imported and sold. But here's where it gets interesting for consumers and businesses, labeling requirements. Any product still using an HFC after its restriction date must clearly label which HFC is in use, the date of manufacture, and other pertinent details. This transparency ensures consumers are well-informed. And for all you manufacturers and importers out there, starting from calendar year 2025, you'll be required to report online to the EPA annually. The very first report under this new rule is due by March 31st, 2026. And for those worried about navigating this new requirement, the EPA is planning training sessions and outreach programs to aid in the smooth implementation. It's also crucial to note that this isn't just an import restriction. The rules apply equally to both domestically produced and imported products, so manufacturers can't make these restricted products in the U. S and then export them. But there are exceptions. Products such as metered dose inhalers, defense sprays, and some specific uses in aerospace and marine sectors are exempt from this rule. All these steps align with the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act's goals which mandates a drastic reduction in HFC production and consumption over the next decade. And the EPA's commitment to this cause is evident. Just last week, they proposed new rules concerning leak repair systems for equipment using HFCs and record-keeping requirements for ozone-depleting substances. Next, we focus on the U.S. Department of Commerce's recent decision to hit the pause button on certain firearm exports. In a significant move, the U.S. Department of Commerce has just announced a temporary halt on the issuance of new export licenses for specific firearms, their related components, and ammunition. This pause, lasting approximately 90 days, targets non-governmental end-users worldwide, with a few notable exceptions. 
Why the pause, you ask? The department intends to take this time to reassess the existing firearm export control policies, all in the name of advancing U.S. national security and foreign policy interests. And to be more specific, this pause affects the Bureau of Industry and Securities, or BIS for short, new licenses for certain firearms listed under specific export control classification numbers. The exact ECCNs in question are 0A501, 0A502, 0A504, and 0A505. However, not all destinations are impacted. The pause excludes exports heading to Ukraine, Israel, or any country in the country group A, 1, which represents the Wassenaar arrangement participating states. Now, many of our listeners might be wondering about license applications intended for the end users in the exempted regions, like Ukraine, Israel, or the A1 group. Well, for those destinations, BIS will continue its review of license applications and maintain the current licensing policies. An essential note for exporters, while the pause is in effect, any applications involving the aforementioned ECCNs will be put on a hold-without-action status. So it's kind of a wait-and-see situation for them. But don't fret if you've already been issued or received an export license. This pause won't affect those, so business can proceed as usual in accordance with the terms and conditions of the previously granted licenses. And BIS isn't just pausing and stepping back. They're continually monitoring the situation and retain the authority to modify, suspend, or even revoke licenses based on U.S. national security and foreign policy interests. One more thing to highlight is the License Exception Limited Value Shipments, or LELVS. This is still available for parts and components subject to the pause. However, complete firearms and ammunition aren't eligible for this exception. It's evident that the department is taking a thorough approach to ensure that firearms exports align with U.S. national security and foreign policy goals. As always, applicants are advised to exercise due diligence in their review and submission of applications. Last week, a notable shift in the U.S. position on digital trade was brought to the limelight. The U.S. ambassador to the WTO made an unexpected statement announcing that the U.S. would no longer consider data localization as a violation of trade rules. Moreover, the U.S. has stopped its push for open data flows. This shift has sparked swift reactions from various sectors in the country. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden was particularly vocal. He criticized the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, or USTR, for essentially making this decision without significant consultation with Congress or his finance committee. Wyden didn't mince words, saying the move is a win for China, plain and simple. He fears that USTR's decision will lead to China filling the vacuum left by the U.S., giving Beijing more leverage in shaping digital trade norms and increasing the influence of Chinese tech giants. Now, what Wyden is particularly concerned about is the potential for Chinese tech companies to impose their model of internet censorship on smaller nations. This, in turn, would benefit China's infamous digital blockade, the Great Firewall, by isolating American firms and further subjugating Chinese citizens to their surveillance-heavy regime. Wyden even went as far as suggesting that it might be time for Congress to reassess the extent of authority they delegate to the USTR, given this deviation from their mission. The USTR, however, hasn't been silent in the face of this criticism. They defended their position, asserting that several countries, the U.S. included, are reevaluating their stances on data and source codes in relation to trade. By withdrawing support for certain proposals, they believe they are allowing space for these vital national policy debates to develop. Meanwhile, National Foreign Trade Council President Jake Colvin has expressed his shock at this sudden shift. According to Colvin, the U.S. is essentially stepping down from its leadership role in defining the digital standards for the global economy. 
and he isn't alone in his concerns. Members of Congress from both parties have echoed the sentiment, emphasizing the need for the U.S. to actively engage in shaping global digital trade standards. And let's not forget about Senator Elizabeth Warren. She's been cautioning that digital trade talks, especially in the Indo-Pacific economic framework, are too favorable towards big tech. Senator Warren argues that this could ultimately hinder Congress's ability to legislate on privacy. Senator Warren fears that big tech could gain too much power, potentially allowing sensitive personal data of Americans to be shared and stored indiscriminately worldwide. She points out that this not only poses potential security risks, but also gives these tech giants unparalleled control over our personal data. As we continue, we're looking into the nuances behind the U.S.-EU standoff on steel and aluminum trade agreements. The U.S.-EU summit wrapped up recently, and some experts have labeled it a bust when it comes to trade. Dan Mullaney, former assistant U.S. trade representative for Europe, attributes the lack of progress to EU's institutional rigidity. However, Jorn Fleck from the Atlantic Council's Europe Center suggests the U.S. US's demands may be a tad unrealistic. So what's really going on? From the U.S. angle, the primary goal is clear. Keep out cheap, subsidize steel from China, and promote cleaner steel and aluminum trade. Yet, after two years of negotiations, both sides remain at an impasse. Charles Litchfield of the Atlantic Council sheds some light on this. He candidly mentions that the disagreement stems from differing views on steel overcapacity. There was some hope for a consensus on the overcapacity issue this October, but the green steel topic remains contentious. If they can agree on overcapacity, Mullaney suggests that it could serve as a blueprint for other sectors. Now let's talk about Europe's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM. This policy imposes tariffs on imported steel and aluminum based on their carbon footprint. In essence, the higher the carbon content, the higher the tariff. Although certain U.S. states have measures in place to address carbon emissions, many prominent steel-producing states do not. Interestingly, Dan Mullaney suggests that CBAM could be in violation of the World Trade Organization's guidelines. His argument? The system focuses too heavily on the method of reducing emissions rather than the results. In other words, even if U.S. steel is produced sustainably, if it's not via carbon taxing, it might face EU tariffs. Litchfield believes that a middle ground is necessary. The EU should recognize sustainably produced U.S. exports, regardless of the means. But he's skeptical about a blanket exemption from CBAM for U.S. exports. So what's next? Well, opinions vary. Francis Burwell, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, doesn't anticipate a resolution on steel or critical minerals until at least early 2024. She believes the U.S. administration is acting cautiously to protect domestic steel workers. On the brighter side, neither party seems interested in reintroducing the heavy 25% tariffs on European steel. Burwell aptly says, We can continue to kick this can down the road for quite some time. In conclusion, while the U.S. and E.U. navigate these choppy trade waters, Litchfield reminds us that there's still hope. He remains optimistic that a deal on steel overcapacity can materialize in the upcoming months. After all, if Japan can strike a deal, why can't the U.S. and E.U.? For our last story, we've got an important update on product safety standards that could have significant implications for the textile industry. In a move aimed at ensuring the safety of clothing textiles, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, or CPSC, is putting the final touches on a set of new testing requirements. These changes are part of the CPSC's ongoing efforts to maintain high safety standards for textiles, helping to prevent accidents and injuries related to flammability. So what's changing? 
The CPSC's final rule issued on October 25th aims to clarify existing provisions, expand permissible equipment and materials for testing, and update equipment requirements that are outdated. Essentially, this means that manufacturers and testers will have more options and clearer guidelines when it comes to ensuring their products meet safety standards. Now, it's worth noting that these changes didn't come out of the blue. The CPSC first proposed these updates back in September 2022, and after a period of review and consultation, they're now ready to make them official. The new requirements are set to take effect on April 22, 2024, giving companies plenty of time to adapt and ensure compliance. So what does this mean for businesses in the textile industry? In short, it's time to start preparing. Companies will need to review the updated requirements closely to understand what's changing and determine what adjustments, if any, need to be made to their current testing procedures. While change can be challenging, it's crucial to remember that these updates are all in the name of safety. By adhering to the CPSC's new standards, businesses can help ensure that their products are safe for consumers, building trust and maintaining a strong reputation in the market. Thank you for joining us on International Trade Minute, your rapid source of trade updates for busy trade professionals. And we hope to have you back for our next episode. Don't forget to subscribe.